So good afternoon, everyone. I'm very pleased to be doing another podcast. And on this occasion, I'm very happy to be joined by Barbara Corbett. Uh, Barbara has been a solicitor for many years and has actually been in Jersey for 12 years. She's had her own practice, Corbett Lacane, for two and a half years, hugely successful as a solicitor an arbitrator and mediator and does a lot of international work and the focus of our um, podcast today is going to be about international work. Thank you uh, and I'd like to also introduce uh, Suzanne. Suzanne has been a family lawyer for many years, very very well established. She was a partner at Withers and is currently a consultant with Mills and Reeve and um, she, she does a lot of high net worth cases and, uh, and international work but she's also renowned as uh, the person who brought family arbitration to the world really. Thanks very much, Barbara. So we had this idea that we'd um, do something about international family law. This isn't a lecture by any means, it's just to sort of raise a few issues and highlight some points. And obviously we're just skating across the surface, we're not going into detail. So, so please don't use this as anything too academic or indeed practical. Just wanted to raise a few points with you. I suppose the first thing to say is that it's very important when you're dealing with various jurisdictions to think very carefully about where to issue the divorce proceedings. And so that's, I suppose, the starting off point is, is often there. Uh, the reason for that is that different jurisdictions deal with finances on divorce very differently. So it's very important to consider where is best from your client's perspective. So I suppose just to highlight the difference between what the situation is in the EU at the moment, of course, that may change substantially post Brexit and um, outside the EU. So if you have two competing EU jurisdictions, then Brussels two would apply. And uh, that basically means that the first person to issue the divorce proceedings is first seized of the matter and gains exclusive jurisdiction. So uh, the court is seized when the document uh, that starts proceedings is filed at court, provided that steps are taken to serve it on the respondent. And I'll talk a bit about that later. So looking at the jurisdiction criteria for that, the jurisdiction lies with the court of the member states where either the spouses are habitually resident, the spouses were last habitually resident and one of them still resides there, the respondent is habitually resident, or for a joint petition either of the spouses is habitually resident, uh, the petitioner is habitually resident having resided there for at least a year immediately before the application was made, the petitioner is habitually resident there having resided there for at least six months before the application was made and is either a national of the member state or for the UK domiciled there. And there's also allowance for jurisdiction to lie with the courts of the member state where the spouses are both nationals and that's for the UK and Ireland. Therefore, that's very important to know and to think about situations where you've got two competing states. I've already mentioned that um, you gain the jurisdiction, as it were, by filing a document, but then you do have to serve the document quickly or within a reasonable time. And there's some cases in relation to that, W&W &W and TUM and TUM. Um, 
just mentioning those. And there's the difference then, uh, Barbara, between inside the EU and outside the EU. If you're outside the EU, then the forum convenience rule applies. So the court that is best placed to deal with this dispute has jurisdiction. So it's a search for the most appropriate forum to deal with the dispute. And I just want to highlight now just some of the factors that clients need to consider when assessing which jurisdiction is the forum convenience. So thinking about where was the centre of the family's interest during the marriage, if there's been any relocation, what was the intention of the parties relating to that relocation, is there a pre or post marital agreement as to jurisdiction, those sorts of questions are very important to think about and so that's just a really quick canter through the difference of approach between an EU case and a non-EU case as far as England is concerned. Barbara did you want to say a few words about Jersey? Well yes Jersey has never been in the EU and Jersey isn't in the in the UK so we've always had forum convenience. It, basically it, it is the most convenient forum so it is what's best for the parties and where their centre of, of, of their life is, where their property is, where their assets are but also it might be worth considering if there is an option where you, whether you can issue either in, in England or in Jersey you might want to consider Jersey or England on the basis of the differences. For example, in Jersey, there are no pension sharing orders. So if pension sharing is important, then you would need to issue in England. On the other hand, the, the system in Jersey is more streamlined. There aren't as many cases coming before the courts. It's easier to get on. It's a, it's a far more uh, appropriate forum to, to, get, to get into court. So things can be much quicker. And also if there are assets in Jersey, and there needs to be enforcement, perhaps the trust assets or company assets, is much easier. If the orders are made in Jersey, they can be then enforced in Jersey far easier than if they're uh, made in another jurisdiction. Yeah, and sometimes people think about questions such as how does the court deal with disclosure? How, you know, what sorts of rules do they have in relation to disclosure? That can also be a point. So there's a number of factors to consider when we're That's dealing right. with these sorts of cases. Yes, in, in, in Jersey, the disclosure rules are much the same, but there again, there are differences, although Jersey law follows English law to a greater, a large extent, there are differences, particularly in relation to child maintenance, which is all dealt with through the courts in Jersey, unlike in, in England, and spousal maintenance is treated uh, differently in Jersey than in, than in some parts of England. So these are all factors to be taken into account. And the outcomes can be just hugely different, can't they? I mean, when I always think of um, England and Scotland, when I think about that in terms of the potential, I'm not saying it's, it's you know, flavour of the month at the moment, but you do have the potential for lifelong maintenance in England. But in Scotland, it's a, a three-year maintenance and that's it. So it really does create huge differences depending on, on, the, yeah. on the jurisdiction exactly. chosen. I, I think you were going to say uh, some words now about child abduction. Yes, well, child abduction is clearly one of the significant uh, international law features that, that we, we have to deal with. And child abduction is when a child is taken from their, 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 their place of habitual residence without the permission of uh, or the consent or agreement of the other parent. And uh, the, the difficulties um, that can arise 
particularly in relation to uh, if, if, the, if the child is taken without notice and is hidden and it takes a long time before proceedings can be brought sometimes parents can take children from country to country and it's very difficult for the left behind parent to catch up but uh, child abduction it has changed over the years um, but it is still a, a matter which it, it is quite important as more and more international families um, arise and people come from different places and perhaps end up living in a third country and wish to to go home to, to relocate and it's it's a, a a great difficulty yeah and i suppose if you wanted to relocate the, the first point i mean child abduction is very much at the end of the road as it were that's when somebody does that Absolutely. without any form of consent but one thing you might consider in the first instance is asking your partner to or uh, husband wife ex-husband wife to consent and if they won't um, consent then you have to make a court application to re relocate so leave to remove um, a child from the jurisdiction and as we know those cases are incredibly difficult and the stakes are high the result is binaries there's often very little um, room for negotiation or compromise. I mean, I have done a couple of mediations involving these cases, but generally speaking, I think they go to court and there's often a fight because it is so difficult to compromise in relation to them. And in England and Wales, there's been quite an evolution of the law. Um, for many years, the leading judgment was the case of pain and pain. And in that case, they said that the welfare of the child uh, was always paramount, no presumption in favour of the applicant. The proposals needed to be scrutinised because the court needed to be satisfied that there was a genuine motivation for the move and not an intention to end contact with a staying behind parent and uh, needed to think about what the contact would be going forward with the staying behind parent. Uh, so to, to ensure that there was an opportunity for ongoing contact. But over time, there was quite a lot of criticism of that case. And so in 2011, there was a, then another case, MK and CK. And in that case, um, the uh, welfare principle was deemed to be paramount. And the distress of an applicant not being able to relocate was no more important than any other factor in the pain guidance. So what the court was saying there was that there needed to be a global holistic analysis um, to be undertaken. And I think that was, you know, quite a big move. We've then seen the case of REF in 2015 and then RE-K in 2020 in which Williams J suggested a sort of FKC pain um, composite to help the court identify the relevant issues and said there needs to be an integrated approach to the welfare checklist and the pain guidance. So I think that case is so important now when thinking about relocation cases. Barbara, I suppose another area that we deal with a lot is um, the area of prenups and the extent to which we involve foreign lawyers in those prenups. I mean, I quite often get advice if there are two or three potential jurisdictions. And this can obviously delay the time frame for drafting, can increase the costs, make it much more complex. But obviously you do need to do that if there are possibilities of other jurisdictions 
being involved. Do you want to say a few words about that? Yes, um, I think it is important to consider what the uh, what what the effect of a prenup is on the in, in the jurisdiction where it it might be that the divorce would would take place in in the future because. Obviously, in some places, prenups are considered to be binding and in others, they are hardly considered at all. So there is a range of the way in which the court deals with these things. In Jersey, a prenup is considered as part of all the circumstances of the case. And the small number of cases that there have been have confirmed that unless there is going to be real hardship, by the, the terms of the, the prenup being put into place, then prenups should, generally speaking, be followed. Um, in, in, in some respects, that, that's the, the, the old Jersey uh, view that uh, parties should be held to their contracts where at all possible. That tends to come through with, with the, the idea about prenups. But what we also have in Jersey, because there is a different succession and uh, property regime than in England or Wales, we have what's known as contra de mariage because in Jersey we have uh, forced airship which is a leisure team which is um, where the, uh, the the spouse and the children can claim a certain proportion of the estate regardless of what's what's written in a will and also dower where the, uh, the, the, the surviving spouse has the right to uh, the use of a third of the the, the, the real property so uh, Historically, that would be a, a, a dower house. Now, it is possible for a contract marriage to be prepared in Jersey, which is then registered in the public registry, and that confirms to the rest of the world that uh, the parties, both parties, or or either or party, uh, either the potential husband or wife, uh, foregoes their uh, their their customary law rights to dower and, and legitimacy. So that's something yeah. that's peculiarly Jersey. Yes, and, and that's what you find. I think the more you do, you realise there are so many sort of unique and peculiar elements when you deal with various jurisdictions. And that's something that I found, I feel, is I've got a compendium now of all the different features around the world. I mean, I would just also make the point that, of course, we should be taking advice from um, lawyers in all potentially relevant jurisdictions, not just now, but also in the future. So it is important to ask the clients about plans for the future. Do they plan to relocate, work abroad for a period, or are they expecting to inherit assets in another jurisdiction, just to make sure that we've cleared all of the points there. And just as a sort of really quick checklist, the sorts of things that I'm asking uh, foreign lawyers to advise on include the enforceability of an English prenup in other jurisdictions, um, should there be a single agreement or mirror agreement in very, various jurisdictions, should there be a jurisdiction clause, should there be a choice of law clause, what is the divorce process in other relevant jurisdictions, uh, should the agreement separate out maintenance and non-maintenance elements, and also, are, are there any religious considerations that need to be taken at, into account? So really important to sort of write a, a good checklist and make sure that you have clarity of advice from foreign lawyers. Um, it's probably important for you as well as an English lawyer, in my case, to explain the current English law so that they can fully appreciate the context of the English uh, nuptial agreement and what it is we're asking them to advise. So I think a lot to think about when we're dealing with prenups, 
and certainly that's a real growth area and an area where I feel that um, that's where I'm spending most of my time liaising with foreign lawyers at the moment is, is really in relation to prenuptial agreements. So thinking about how we liaise with those foreign lawyers, I think both you and I, Barbara, fellows of the International Academy of Family Lawyers, and that's both right. have loved our trips around the world. So what does it give to you? Well, the great thing about uh, being a fellow of the uh, IAFL, International Academy of Family Lawyers, particularly coming from a, a small jurisdiction, is that it, it gives access to people from all around the world where you can just send an email, just pick up the phone to say, I've got this knotty question about a case in Egypt or Malawi or Botswana, and could you just give me the heads up? Is this something that you know, we, we need to bring proceedings in your jurisdiction or in our own? my jurisdiction and it, it's so helpful because we're, we're, we're part of a, a network and you know that um, whoever you're speaking to is going to be uh, a fully qualified family lawyer fully experienced and works to the same same principles and same guidelines so you're not uh, working in the dark and generally speaking um, certainly for an initial contact people will, will work on a reciprocal friendly basis and uh, you don't actually need to instruct people formally unless you, you're actually needing to get proper um, uh, advice in relation to an application for example or, or, or a prenup but it, it's a, a really great way of making contacts with people across the world. Uh, and you don't have to be a fellow of the International Academy of Family Lawyers to find out, find a lawyer in a different jurisdiction do you? You're able to go on their website and search for lawyers in jurisdictions without actually being a fellow. So that resource is available to everybody, isn't it? Yes, and, and people have, you, any, any lawyer, any solicitor or, or, or Jersey advocate would be able to access the IFL database and know that the people that they are going to be contacting are proper family lawyers and they, ha they have expertise and experience in, in that area. Yeah, and rather sadly, uh, we haven't been able to go to many conferences since lockdown of course we've missed a few uh, but which has been your favorite ifl conference oh i think it had to be rome in 2008 that was my first one and it was uh, it, it was phenomenal yeah i think i find it really difficult to sort of almost separate them out because each of them has been so interesting and i feel as though i've met some fantastic people across the world who have now become great friends and also just had such amazing experiences but I think India was mine I think I loved Delhi so much it was very different to what I expected and I was very lucky to be asked to do the education program which I thoroughly enjoyed doing so it's a win-win so I would encourage people to think about joining the IAFL look at the criteria for becoming a fellow and think about it but even if you're not as we've indicated you would be able to get foreign advice from a lawyer by searching against their country or name if you know the name of somebody so Barbara anything else to say internationally well I just think that family lawyers across the world need to collaborate and to cooperate and uh, it's fantastic that we're able to do that yeah and it's been great collaborating and cooperating with you on this podcast so thanks very much and nice to um, see everybody well not see everybody but hope you've enjoyed listening to this and look forward to the next podcast thanks very much thank you bye bye